titled this lecture this morning, I don't know what it is in the program, but um, Creation and Trinity, Creation and Trinity. And once again, uh, my overarching aim here is to offer a pre-modern reading of Genesis 1, and particularly uh, some of the ways that our tradition, both Catholic and Reformed, has uh, discerned the presence of the Trinity in the creation account in Genesis 1. I'll point out again that in the opening paragraph of chapter 4 on creation and our confession, one of the two assertions that, that cannot, let's say, obviously and explicitly uh, be traced back to the text of, of Genesis 1 is the Trinitarian reference, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is the question that I began to ask myself. Can the doctrine of the Trinity, or or shall we say, can the presence and the operation of the Trinity be discerned in the creation account itself? Now, of course, that, that creation was created by our triune God can be ascertained uh, with confidence from other passages, but, but the question here that I'm asking is, what about Genesis 1? And the traditional answer, answer would be to say yes. And so my, my goal here is uh, fairly simplistic, although um, there's at least one consideration that we'll give that is, is uh, somewhat more abstract, um, as Augustine tends to be, um, but... The goal here is fairly simplistic. It's to offer uh, pre-modern ways of discerning the presence and the operation of the Trinity in, in the first chapter of Genesis itself. Now, I want to say something uh, just at the outset here about theological method um, as we approach the text. We are presupposing some things here. We're presupposing three things. First, we are presupposing divine authorship and divine authorial intent, and we are not limiting the text to what the human author may or may not have had in their mind at the time of their writing. So it's not simply what was Moses thinking in his own mind, um, what all did he understand at that moment, um, but it it is what is the Lord saying in his word. Second, and in light of what we just said, we are presupposing a certain principle that was articulated well by Augustine. The new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. And so we are are not assuming here that a developed doctrine of the Trinity is revealed in the opening chapter of the Bible much less are we making the claim that we can arrive at the truth of the Trinity through creation apart from revelation. What I am saying is this. Having arrived at the knowledge of the Trinity by New Testament revelation especially, we are now able to confess but also confidently discern the presence and the operation of the Trinity as far back as the creation account itself, as we read the Old Testament in the light of the new. Now, the third thing we are presupposing here is that all three persons of the Trinity were involved in the act of creation. And we know this with certainty from other uh, passages, other texts of Scripture. So, for instance, and uh, our brother Ryan I just read this verse from 1 Corinthians 8 and, and verse 6. Both creation from the Father and through the Son are affirmed and are affirmed no less uh, with respect to the unity of the Godhead. So again, 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 6, For us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live or exist. And, of course, the Spirit is also, well, the Spirit is here also speaking, but the Spirit is also acknowledged uh, even in Genesis 1 and 
verse 2 as elsewhere. And yet, there are not three gods, there are not three creators properly so-called. Here, here we are presupposing, presupposing the undivided operation or work of the Trinity. And so creation is one work by one worker, but each person, each divine person, acts concurrently according to their proper mode of subsisting. That is, in every divine operation, there are divine, excuse me, there are diverse modes of acting within the unity of the same divine essence. And therefore, there is a threefold causality, efficient, exemplary, and final causality that is distinguished within one and the same principle of all things. And so as the efficient cause, the father works from himself. As the exemplary cause, the son works according to himself. And as the final cause, the spirit works for the sake of himself. But it is one and the same God that works as from, as from one principle. The father works according to, or we could say through the son, together, by and in the Holy Spirit. And so again, we have here the, uh, the doxology of Romans chapter 11 and verse 36, which captures, uh, captures this, this principle, this Trinitarian principle, well. For of him and through him and to him are all things. Okay, so now the Trinity, the presence or the operation of the Trinity as it is discernible uh, in Genesis 1 as we understand, as we, as we arrive at this within the, the interpretive tradition of Genesis 1. The Trinity's presence has been discerned in the creation account. I won't say that this is comprehensive, so let's say at least, at least in three ways. At least in three ways. So the first way. The Trinity's presence is discerned, is discernible in the divine plurals, in the divine plurals. And, and, and the specific text that, that I have in mind here is Genesis, is Genesis 1 and verses 26 and 27. These are verses that we'll look again at uh, regarding the image of God, but here in terms of the divine plurals. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. There ought to be nothing mind-blowing about, about what I intend to say here in this observation. My goal is simply to give you a greater sense of freedom, a greater sense of liberty to let the text speak for itself without being encumbered by modern idiosyncratic assumptions. This text is the first of a handful of occurrences wherein the Lord speaks of himself in some manner in the plural. Or or we could ask the question, does he? Is this God speaking of himself in some manner in the plural? And I and I raise that question because it is not it is not common anymore to see here a witness to the Trinity or to a plurality of persons. And there seems to be there seems to be little burden among modern scholars to explain why, to explain why we shouldn't see a reference here to the Trinity. Um, the only explanations given why not is to say that uh, perhaps that it wouldn't fit with the uh, rigid monotheism of ancient Israel or that it would, it would have been foreign to the mind of Moses. Gordon Wenham he simply states this, and then he moves on. He says, Christians have traditionally seen this verse as adumbrating the Trinity. It is now universally admitted that this was not what the plural meant to the original author. And he leaves it in the dust. Of course, we ought to stop and ask, which author are we speaking about? Moses or God? And can God have more in mind than Moses than Moses is fully aware of? 
Can't an inspired passage of scripture be more pregnant with meaning and implications than the human author is or was immediately aware of at the time of the writing? For the sake of argument, however, if it is not an adumbration of the Trinity, that's to say that that the, the presence and operation of the Trinity can be discerned there, not demonstrated in, in, in the philosophical um, sense from creation and so forth, but, but it can be discerned there in the light of New Testament revelation. Okay. So for the sake of argument, if, if the Trinity is not adumbrated, um, if, if it is not an adumbration of the Trinity, what is the modern explanation for why the Lord speaks here of us and our image? And there, there have been uh, uh, several, um, perhaps, attempts at giving an explanation for this. But you may be familiar with the recently deceased Michael Heiser. Dr. Heiser, specializing in ancient Near Eastern studies, popularized what has been called the divine council interpretation, suggesting that passages like these in the Old Testament conform to what is found in other ancient Near Eastern texts, wherein God or the gods, if you will, deliberate about their uh, 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 deliberate within their heavenly council, um, a council which they say is is composed of of um, is composed of angels or, or sometimes referred to as demigods. And so it's proposed here that this is, this is no allusion to the plurality of persons in the Godhead, but rather that God is speaking to his divine counsel in typical ancient Near Eastern fashion, deliberating about the creation of man. The interesting thing is that this is not a new interpretation it was actually conceived by Jewish interpreters beginning with uh, Philo of Alexandria. And, and in fact, our ancient and reformed forefathers attacked this position as a Jewish anti-Trinitarian misreading of the text. So just thinking of that in the light of, of the history of interpretation in our tradition. Listen to... Basil of Caesarea. And God said, let us make man. God, they say, addresses himself to several beings. It is to, it is to the angels before him that he says, let us make man. Jewish fiction. A fable whose frivolity shows whence it has come. To reject one person, they admit many. To reject the Son, they raise servants to the dignity of counselors. They make of our fellow slaves the agents in our creation. John Gill offers a... I had to take quotes out for sake of length, but skipping from from, uh, the ancient church now to, to John Gill, John Gill offers a similar remark. He says, the Jews have tried, at many, have tried at many things to evade the force of this text. Sometimes, they tell us, that God consulted with his angels and speaks to them about man's creation, which is the reason of this plural expression. But it ought to be observed that angels are creatures and so not of God's counsel. For who hath directed the spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, has, hath taught him? With whom took he counsel? Isaiah 40. Not with any of his creatures. No, not with the highest angel in heaven. They are none of them equal to him, nor equal to the work mentioned in the text under consideration. They are creatures and therefore cannot be possessed of creative power, nor were they concerned in man's creation, nor was man made after their image and likeness. Von Maastricht refers to the divine council view as most illogical and atheological. Atheological, atheological, untheological. It's not a theological reading of the text, is what he's saying. Ancient and reformed alike 
viewed such interpretations as an attempt to evade the force of the text. Augustine reasons like this. He says, since God's words in our image are true, Scripture said, God made man to the image of God as if to say to his image, which is the very Trinity. And here's what he's saying. He's in this context. He's saying more than this, but he's saying if God's word is true, we cannot so easily dismiss the fact that the Lord speaks of himself and of his own image in the plural. And as new covenant Christians reading the Old Testament in the light of the new we ought not be surprised to see a reference here, an allusion at least to the Trinity, in, in coet and, and undeveloped, to be sure, but, but a reference nonetheless. In short, it says what it says, so let the text speak for itself. <clears throat> Once again, Augustine sets a certain exegetical trajectory here, and so he's worth hearing at greater length. He writes, For God said, Let us make man in our image and likeness. But a little later it said, And God made man to the image of God. The term our certainly would not have been correctly used, being plural in number, if man had been made to the image of one person, whether of Father or of the Son or of the Holy Spirit. But because he was made in the image of the Trinity, therefore it was said, in our image. But, on the other hand, lest we think that three gods were to be believed in the Trinity, since the same Trinity is one God, it is added... And God, you see here in the singular, it is added, and God made man in the image of God, and also this, in his own image. You see what he's doing as he's reflecting upon the text. Our image implies a plurality of persons in whose image we are made. But lest we think in terms of a plurality of gods or a plurality of essences, he it, it, it is the, the scripture adds, repeats itself in the singular, in his own image, in the image of God, um, since the same trinity, trinity, as Augustine says, is one God. Many times, many times the Reformed simply assert this interpretation without much deliberation, and they can do this because they are working from within an exegetical, inherited exegetical tradition. Some, however, also elaborate in a way that that even more clearly echoes Augustine's words. Henry Ainsworth, for example, writes, Let us... This is meant by the three in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, which are three in one, 1 John 5, 7. Our image, the image of the Holy Trinity, whereby man in nature, knowledge, righteousness, holiness, glory, etc., resembles God his makers. I'll say something more about, I'll, I'll say something, I think, more about that expression, makers, in a minute. But listen to Matthew Poole. The plurals, us and our, afford an evident proof of a plurality of persons in the Godhead. John Gill, again. John Gill especially echoes Augustine. The pronouns us and our do so manifestly express a plurality that he must willfully, that the interpreter of scripture must willfully shut his eyes who does not see it. And yet, lest we should from hence conclude a plurality of gods, the words image and likeness are expressed in the singular number, a plurality in the deity being entirely consistent with the unity of essence. Nothing is more plain from hence than that more than one was concerned in the consultation about and in the formation of man. 
Hence, we have those plural expressions used. This is what Henry Ainsworth was referring to. Hence, we have those plural expressions used in the divine being or of the divine being when he is represented as the creator of men in, in the plural, creators, in Job 35 and verse 10. Where is God, my makers? And Psalm 149, verse 2, let Israel rejoice in his makers. And Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 1, remember thy creators in the day of thy youth. And Isaiah 54, verse 5, for thy husbands are thy makers. The Lord of hosts is his name. And now he goes on, he says, now, What reason can be given for these plural expressions if there was not more than one concerned in man's creation? The words are manifest proof of a plurality of divine persons who were equal to one another and to the work of man's creation in which they were jointly concerned. Okay, one more example. Turretin. Turton unequivocally writes, No reason can be assigned why God, who elsewhere so frequently speaks of himself in the singular, singular, should use the plural verb unless to intimate a certain plurality of persons in the unity of essence. Hence, he does not say, let me make, but let us make, so that more than one is intimated. And in creating, there is a common operation to them, so there ought to be a common nature. He does not say in images, but in our image, so that the identity of image designates the identity of essence common to the more than one. It may also be pointed out that this is not the only place in Genesis that the Lord speaks of himself in the plural. We see it again in the transgression of, of Adam. Um, Genesis 3 and verse 22, Behold, the man has become like one of us. And again in the Tower of Babel, in Genesis 11 and verse 7, where the Lord says, Let us go down and there confuse <clears throat> their language. There are other examples the scripture in several places speaks of our, as we saw from Gill and uh, Ainsworth, that um, the scripture speaks of our makers or our creators in the plural, and yet God alone, God alone has the power to create. And, and all but Calvin, it seems, um, quite comfortably point out, they're comfortable pointing out that Elohim, Elohim, which we find throughout the Old Testament in the plural form, Elohim, uh, God, God, but but quite literally it's it's gods. We find it in the plural form, um, accompanied by the singular verb and and singular pronouns. Uh, the tradition has been quite comfortable um, suggesting that this is this is suggestive of the Trinity. Listen to von Maastricht. The one creating is Elohim, literally gods, namely the three persons of the deity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For although we ought not to contend with our adversaries for the Trinity from this word alone, because this argument is exposed to many exceptions, nevertheless, when the Trinity has been asserted by other more evident arguments, there can be no doubt for anyone that the Holy Spirit intended to use the plural number for signifying a plurality in God, since the singular form of the word was otherwise available. What's more? Maybe you've heard of uh, a traditional uh, reading strategy, a more modern label to it, but a traditional reading strategy that has been called prosopological exegesis. Am I, am I pronouncing that right, Rich? Rich doesn't know. Okay. It, it highlights and, and it acknowledges this, this reading strategy, if you will. It highlights and acknowledges a phenomenon found throughout the Old Testament 
wherein God portrays himself as speaking to himself as one divine person speaking to another. Um, as you very well know, we are, um, we are occasionally, in these passages, we are occasionally given a glimpse into, uh, into eternity as if, as if we are eavesdropping on an, um, an intra-Trinitarian dialogue, right, between the Father and the Son and Spirit. And so Psalm 110, David himself is speaking here. He says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. And a little farther he says, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek which we know from Hebrews and from the New Testament that um, this is God the Father speaking to God the Son. Similarly, Hebrews cites Psalm 40. Therefore, when he came into the world, speaking of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, coming in the flesh, assuming human nature to himself, therefore, When he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. He he said this. Who was he saying this to? It's the Son of God who came into the world is speaking to the Father in acknowledgement that the Father had prepared a body for him that he might fulfill, he might do the will of the Father in our place. And to these examples, we could add others wherein we are allowed to, as I said, eavesdrop, eavesdrop on an intra-Trinitarian dialogue, each of which anticipates the, the fuller revelation of the Trinity in the New Testament. And quite simply, let us make man in our image is the first of these several, of, 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 of several such dialogues that are given to us, that are portrayed for us in the Old Testament. Let us make man in our image. It signifies the multiform, multiform origin of man. We could put it differently. It signifies the creation, the creation of man can be reduced to our threefold causal origin and end that corresponds to this plural us and our. Um, it, it, it looks back, it, 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 it calls to mind, rather, um, our efficient cause, our exemplary cause, and our final cause. Remember that man, we've said, does not possess his being from himself or according to himself or for himself, but from an us, from an our threefold source, from the Father, according to the Son, and by the Holy Spirit, so that, so that by the love of the Spirit and according to the knowledge of the Son, we might be brought back to the Father. This, this threefold causal relation to God is our efficient cause, our exemplary cause, and our final cause is inchoately, is insipidly contained in these words. Let us make man in our image, and it says something about what the image of God is, but more on that later. Okay, we've belabored maybe the obvious text in Genesis 1. Secondly, the presence of the Trinity, uh, the Trinity's presence and operation may be discerned in the divine fiats, in the divine fiats um, this is more abstract um, following Augustine and a little bit, so it's a little bit more difficult, so bear with me. What I have in mind here is yet another way in which the church Catholic or church universal has discerned the Trinitarian presence within the creation account of Genesis 1. This is yet another view that was um, solidified within the tradition to a greater or lesser extent, by Augustine's theological reflections upon this text. I'm sure you know what I mean by uh, fiat. It refers to the Latin translation of of the let there be uh, clauses, uh, statements in uh, the creation account. From this, Augustine 
contemplates in what sense it is said that God said, let there, let there be. God said. I think uh, Rich already made some allusions to this and raised some questions about this. Was it a word spoken in time or in eternity? Was it a word spoken in time or in eternity? Were these new words, newly spoken in the unfolding succession of moments of time? Or were they eternal words spoken in some manner in the eternal generation of the word of God, the Father's utterance in the word of God? Augustine's concern is that if God newly spoke these words in time, then creation would designate a change in God. In that moment, God would have become what he was not from eternity. He would have become a creator. And what's more, it would contradict what John tells us in the prologue of his gospel, that God created all things through the eternal word of God. In other words, all things that have been made have in some fundamental way been spoken into existence through the Father's original word, his only word, in whom the Father not only expresses his whole, his whole essence, but also every way in which his essence can be, and, and by his decree will be, imitated in finite and creaturely form. This leads Augustine into a, a uniquely Trinitarian reflection upon the divine fiats of creation. He writes this. This very utterance recorded in Genesis is the word of the Father, his only begotten Son, in whom are all created things even before they are created. This is going to require us to make some distinctions. They are in the eternal word of God even before they are created. In other words, he's saying he is the eternal creator even before creation actually came to be in time. Why? Because in speaking his word, the word of God, the son of God, he spoke all things. He spoke all things in his eternal conception of himself and his word. The Father fully and perfectly expresses all that he is along with all that he can do and all that he has freely decreed to do is expressed in his eternal expressing, expressive word. As such, Before anything that was made was made, it existed in the divine word in a certain manner of speaking. All things exist in the word, in God, not actually and absolutely, but relative to him according to whom all things are patterned and are expressed in time. This is is the basis of of the, this would be a lecture of its own, but this is the basis of the older doctrine of the divine ideas or of the reformed doctrine of the decree. This lays a a theological foundation and understanding for, for the decree. God said, let there be. When the Father eternally expressed himself in the Son, he eternally and therefore simultaneously expressed the exemplary form of all that he has freely decreed through him. And so Augustine says, nothing could be created that did not first exist within the co-eternal life in the word of God, co-eternal with the Father. Nothing could, be, could exist in time if it did not, in an exemplary way, already exist in the word, is what he's saying. In other words, in the first part of the creational formula, as Augustine is, is uh, meditating on this, the first part of the creational formula, and God said, let there be, 
Augustine sees here a portrayal of God looking back, so to speak, to the exemplary art and archetypal word in whom each ectypal creature is conceived and according to whom each creature would be formed in time. Hang on to that as we build on it. So as such, God has always, in this, in this Augustinian way anyways, God has always been the eternal creator in whom are the eternal ideas of all things expressed in his eternal word. And yet, this does not mean, if you're thinking about this in your mind, this does not imply an eternal creation. It does not imply an eternal creation any more than an eternal decree implies eternal effects. Augustine goes on to note that with some variation, there is more to the creational formula. Um, with, with some variation of the creational formula throughout Genesis 1, there, there's more to this, to this formula. There are three locutionary acts repeated in Genesis 1. And they all amount, they, they together amount to something like this. Let it be made... And thus it was made, and what was made was good. Right? Let it be made, and thus it was made, and it was good. What was made was good, is good. Augustine finds further distinctions in these expressions that, sim- that signify how that which was eternally uttered in the word have come into being in time. Augustine goes on to explain the rest of the creational fiat formula is like this. That just, just as the, the Father expresses all that he is in the word together with, with the word and together with the word loves all that he is through the Spirit. When we read in Genesis, and God said, let there be, we are, we are to understand God the Father speaking and expressing not only himself, but all things in his eternal word of God. Not in time, but in eternity. Not in the word's external procession, but in the word's internal generation. Which is why the scripture then adds, he says, which is why the scripture makes, makes a movement uh, toward Uh, these things existing in time by adding, and thus it was made, wherein the internal procession of the Son, of the Word, now terminates in an external created effect. Thus it was made, or it was made thusly. That is, the creature has actually come into being according to, thusly, or after the manner in which it was eternally conceived in the Word. Thusly it was made, that is, in accordance with, who, with, with, with whom each thing is expressed, um, with how each thing is expressed in the word exemplar. Augustine then asked, this, asked the question, why the scripture adds, and what was made was good. And among other, other explanations and reasons, Augustine proposes that it is added in order to indicate to us that all things have come to be by the Spirit's work of forming and perfecting all things. But how does the Spirit perform and perfect all things? He performs and perfects all things in, conform- in bringing them in conformity to how the Father has conceived each thing in his word. Because the creature's goodness consists, that which is made was good, and the creature's goodness consists in its conformity to the word so as to reflect the goodness of the word himself through which which goodness the father by the spirit loves himself and all creatures. He, He sees his own goodness, his own glory reflected in his creation by the spirit bringing all things into conformity to his, his mind, as it were, expressed in his word concerning all things. Now that's a mouthful, an earful, 
Perhaps Augustine best summarizes what he is trying to say in the following passage. He writes, It was, of course, the father of the word who said, Let it be made. And since creation was affected by his speaking, there can be no doubt that it was done by means of the word. And the statement, God saw that it was good, makes it plain that God did not create under stress of any compulsion or because he lacks something for his own needs, but his, his only motive was goodness, his own goodness. And the assertion of the goodness of the created work follows the acts of creation in order to emphasize that the work corresponded to the goodness of each thing conceived in the word. Now, his goodness is rightly interpreted as the Holy Spirit. Then the whole united trinity is revealed to us in his works. Still a mouthful. Now, admittedly, just to say something about um, the Reformed tradition here. This is somewhat dissatisfying, but um, there is not much reflection. There is not. I I I couldn't find much reflection among the Reformed upon um, Augustine's exegesis here, one way or the other. Um, I didn't find anything rejecting it, but there just doesn't seem to be much reflection upon it, one way or the other. But the theology of it, of what Augustine is developing here. The theology of it is seen in how the Reformed relate the doctrine of the eternal procession of the Son and the Spirit to their external processions, which terminate in those temporal effects like creation. And it's seen as well in how the theology of it is seen as well in how the Reformed relate the intrinsic, imminent acts of God, his eternal decree of creation, for instance, to his extrinsic, transient transient works or acts, such as the actual work of creation that terminates, the execution of his decree that terminates in time in the creature. In other words, although Augustine's exegetical reflections do not seem to appear much in the Reformed literature, they are there in the background in relation to other theological, very fundamental theological discussions. I have in my notes here C. Edward Lee and his system of divinity. Um, You you can see, if you're looking closely, you can see um, the influences there. I'm going to leave that there um, for your further uh, rumination. Thirdly, uh, and... More briefly, the Trinity's presence or, or the operation of the Trinity in, in creation may be discerned in the Trinitarian or, or divine appropriations. Here, we are bringing together both triads in paragraph one of our confession on this chapter, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and power, wisdom, and goodness. So very briefly, by divine appropriations, I I intend here, or or, uh, the theological language here intends, um, or the so-called Trinitarian appropriations, um, is speaking, let, let let me start over. By speaking about the Trinitarian appropriations, we're talking about that wherein even, even though all essential attributes apply equally and without distinction to all three persons, right? So when we talk about power and wisdom and goodness in the essential and, and proper sense, it applies to the essence of God. It applies equally to all three, commonly to all three persons. Yet, there, is a, there, there are certain attributes Namely, those that are either the transcendentals themselves or are, like power, wisdom, and goodness, are reducible to the transcendentals. 
There are certain attributes that are especially or may especially be appropriated to one of the persons in particular. So, for example, unity is appropriated to the Father, truth to the Son or to the Word, and goodness or, or, or love, uh, we speak in our tradition as well, to the Spirit. And, and based on a proper understanding of these transcendentals, it is, it is also commonly said that, that power is appropriated to the Father, wisdom to the Son or to the Word, and again, goodness to the Spirit. And it's, it's really these uh, last three that I want to focus on very briefly as we find them in our, in our confession. So power, wisdom, and goodness which are rooted and grounded in the transcendentals, reducible to the transcendentals, unity, truth, and goodness. So attributes such as power, wisdom, and goodness are essential to God, as we just said, and therefore belong to all three persons equally. And so with that in mind, here's the question. On what basis are they appropriated to the three persons respectively? without sort of just being um, arbitrary, being cute, if you will. Um, On what basis do we do this? Here's the rationale. Whereas each attribute, whereas such attributes are properly and essentially predicated of God because they are general and common to all persons, they're also appropriated to the three persons, respectively, because there is an ordered relation between them or among them that reflects the order of relations among the persons. There is an order between power, wisdom, and goodness, unity, truth, and goodness, that reflects a relation among them, an ordered relation that reflects leads us into a further contemplation of the order of relations of persons within the Godhead. So, for instance, because a cause cannot give what it does not have the power to give, right? A cause cannot give what it does not have. It must, be, it must have the power to produce its, its effects. Then when we speak of the first cause, the first cause that produces all effects, right? All power must belong to the first and the ultimate cause of all things. Makes sense, right? And so power, power is appropriated especially to the Father. It belongs properly and commonly to the essence, but it is appropriated especially to the Father because the Father is within that order of persons, the principle without principle. He is the origin of all origins. And therefore, to whom, to whom the creation or origin of the world is also especially appropriated. Likewise, all wisdom and truth belongs to the first and ultimate exemplar of all things. Because all other things are true only insofar as they conform to him, truth itself. And thus wisdom and truth, though they belong to God, essentially are especially appropriated to the divine word that expresses all things, in whom the truth of God and every way his essence is imitable in creatures, imitatable in creatures, is perfectly expressed and known. And likewise for goodness with respect to the spirit. And just as there is an order of relations among the persons, so there is a logical order of relations pertaining to power, wisdom, and goodness. I can only scratch the surface here, but let's say this. Goodness, goodness, which is the proper object and end of the will, presupposes both the knowledge of the good and the power to pursue it. And wisdom or knowledge presupposes the power to know. 
So knowledge presupposes a relation to power and goodness a relation to knowledge and power, mirroring the order of personal relations in the Trinity. And so one medieval, uh, very helpfully put it like this. These are said to be appropriated not because they are proper to these persons, since power, wisdom, and goodness are always common to them all, but because the ordered relation among them lead to a better understanding and knowledge of what is proper to the three persons themselves. Thus it follows that these three qualities as being perfect and transcendental are attributed to the first principle to the highest degree, but insofar as they have an ordered reference, they are attributed to the three persons respectively. So pre-modern exegesis isn't always as arbitrary as sometimes it sounds uh, to our modern minds. There is a, there is a thoughtful uh, rationale here. So insofar as Genesis 1 and the work of the six days especially reveal the power, wisdom, and goodness of God, the presence and and the operation of the Trinity may also be discerned. Discerned to those who have eyes to see and discerned by means of, even by means of appropriation. And and the same may be said from, from creation itself, that is, to those who have eyes, who have been given eyes to see, and perhaps we could even say with a set of pre-modern spectacles at that, that, that the power, wisdom, and goodness of God that is manifest in creatures and in his creation um, ought to lead us into a better understanding of what is proper uh, to the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the Trinitarian God who created all things. Well, I hope that gives you, um, if nothing else, uh, repeating things you know, um, but encouraging you to um, have more freedom, more liberty to, to uh, let, read the old guys and let the text of Scripture uh, speak and, um, and maybe even take Augustine as an example, even if you don't take everything he says, as one who is willing to meditate uh, very deeply upon the text of, of God's word.